This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges. Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Welcome to this special bonus episode of the McKinsey Podcast. You're about to hear key takeaways from last week's World Economic Forum in Davos. McKinsey senior partners Tracy Francis and Sven Smith join me for a Q&A as part of our McKinsey Live series, which you can find on McKinsey.com. Now, let's hear from Tracy and Sven. So last week's meeting was, I believe, the largest Davos in history, and it comes at an almost uniquely challenging moment, right, as world leaders contend with a really tough operating environment. Lots of headwinds, lots of uncertainty in the geopolitical and macroeconomic landscape. Sven, you are a Davos veteran at this point. Tell us about the mood on the mountaintop. How would you characterize the spirit in Davos last week? I think the mood was one of connecting. I think lots of people were there trying to connect to make sense of the world, uh, where we are. And I think people were looking both in the microscope, where in the microscope they saw, I think, a long list of issues uh, that we all feel, you know, from geopolitics to war to uh, economics, including sustainability. But the list was actually quite long. And it may be also elements of what in the midterm would be a bright future, call it in the telescope. And I actually think that mood was, as, as a result, a bit ambivalent because you're, on the one end, weigh a whole list of short-term issues, while at the other end, you have these you know, mega waves that could actually be very good for the world. In most of those I've been at, two or three issues would emerge as the big things. And if I had to call out one word, this level was a bit more fragmented. What do I mean? Long list of issues between the microscope and the telescope. And I think the short-term issues were weighing on people, while considerations of the long-term were maybe more positive. It's very nuanced. Tracy, as I know Sven is saying that the agenda was fragmented, but what were some of the themes that stood out to you? Yeah, so it was it was fragmented, and, and Sven also used the word ambivalent, and I actually think that's a very good word. I also thought it was very pragmatic, right? I think particularly the business leaders had a, a very pragmatic view of you know what needs to be done. So the big topics, you know, Gen AI, as Sven said, was everywhere. Um, the tech players were there in force, and you could almost tell from their discourse regularly they speak to each other. Um, geopolitics, but geopolitics with a little bit of a twist around cooperation, whereas, you know, two years ago and last year it was very much sort of everything's defragmenting and, you know, everything's falling apart. There was a bit more of a sense of, you know, are there places to um, cooperate? China had a large delegation there, and India had just an enormous presence up and down the promenade. The U.S. macroeconomy was on people's minds, and of course, the political context, but in particular, the macroeconomy with divergent views, I would say, but with a sort of tendency towards optimism. Climate and nature, empowerment, which we'll get into, and sort of inclusion and economic inclusion and how to drive that. Women's health, which actually was one of the things we were collaborating on, has, you know, reverberated in an enormous way all around the world. You know, the, the, the reach of that material has been enormous. And then finally, I think sort of the, the questions of what type of leaders and what type of talent can help us through this moment was very much on people's minds. Super helpful. Okay. 
Let's start. We are already seeing a deluge of questions on the potential game changer that is Gen AI. Tracy, you mentioned this first. The view on Gen AI obviously seems to ricochet sometimes between wildly optimistic and sort of, you know, morosely and morbidly dystopian. What was the reality of your discussions at Davos and what would you call out as some of the key takeaways on Gen AI this year? Yeah. I think the first thing is just how far the conversation has advanced. I mean, if it, that was last year, you know, people were, the way I thought about last year is people were worried that their kids were cheating on their, you know, their homework, right? Whereas the conversation this year was around a couple of things. First of all, you know, how do you actually get a return from those experiments? How do you move out of the sort of pilot purgatory into, you know, at scale and transformational change? And I think there's quite a lot of debate and still quite a lot of questions as to how to do that. And perhaps secondly, you know, in a sort of somewhat more inspiring fashion was this idea of enhancing human creativity and human potential as opposed to simply, you know, job replacement and that type of thing. And that was very much, you know, very much the theme. And so I think people had a, you know, kind of relatively optimistic point of view on that. And then I think, you know, finally to be, you know, to be completely transparent, there's still quite a lot of uncertainty as to how all of this played out. And I think that was recognized in most of the dialogues as well. Very helpful. So let's take up geopolitics next. Talk to us generally about how leaders are thinking about geopolitical complexity. And then also specifically, whether these rising tensions do risk preventing us from forging a kind of global solutions to our collective challenges that we seem to need. Sven, do you want to take that one? I think Tracy used the word pragmatism, which I think is coming to this discussion too. Now, it's an interesting question, how can you be pragmatic about geopolitics? But the reality is, I think we launched a report that discussed sort of a global collaboration index. And what it shows is global collaboration has been increasing for the last years, but it is plateauing now. It's not yet dropping or crashing. It's plateauing, so that means people are at that plateau still finding pragmatic solutions. I think one thing that comes through is, of course, the sensitive areas where collaboration is going to be much more complicated. So then you ask yourself, what other dimensions? So companies are trying to figure out in their supply chain, what is the dependency ratio that you can be relying on? And is that north of 50%? Is that healthy or is it 30%? So then you get into the pragmatics. How do I get to 30%? Is that possible? And so I think this dependency concentration has become a real pragmatic discussion. Okay. And then how do you solve that? Because dependency, or whether it's materials from Africa or production in China, materials in Australia or Latin or, or grains, it's becoming down to that practical level of, you know, what is a healthy level of concentration dependency at the same time knowing that it gets more expensive if you diversify too much. And I think people are in that game trying to interpret how far can a geopolitics go. But I have this hope because we are quite intensely interconnected that that intense interaction actually is holding us pragmatic. Again, mm. a lot of things than what I just said could happen, but this atmosphere in Davos was one of exchanging what is the pragmatic solution in the current context, which I think centered a lot on how dependent can you be on particular geographies in parts of your supply chain. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Okay, so many questions on the economy specifically, much has been made of this so-called soft landing certainly the U.S. stock market at least now seems to be roaring, but economic signals continue to be challenging to interpret. Was the stance at Davos sanguine, cautious? Tracy, you mentioned sort of divergent. 
How are leaders looking at the year ahead? Sven? I would say what the vote now said is divergent by geography. It's strong in India, probably going to be solid dish in the U.S. Europe lacks a little bit against that. And then if you go to more specific regions, but at the same time, there were a few people that were raising the bar on the level of risk that's still in there. You know, how long can we hold high interest rates? Is the inflation really settling in? How long can governments hold up government spending and so on? So I would say the upside case of 24 beyond what I just said was not articulated. There were downside questions for that. The economy is, of course, largely propped up at the, at the moment by government spending. How long that can continue is an interesting question. Yeah. And consumers have significant saving buff- buffers that have dried up a little bit. And so I think we know, by the way, from economic science, predicting six to eight months in the future is nearly impossible. So. That's also roughly what the conversation is, what the bookends, but the bookends didn't have a high upside for 24. I, I agree with that. You know, the, the people who spoke positively would cite all types of consumer confidence data and the people who were on the other side of the argument were, were still very much on inflation and interest rates. So we're seeing some questions on Europe, actually, some of which are at that nexus of economic and geopolitical dynamics, particularly even the potential supply chain disruptions in the Red Sea. Sven, I'm going to turn to you again here, given that MTI has released new research on European competitiveness. What's your take on the way these changing dynamics will affect Europe in the future? Again, I would go to uh, pragmatism discussions. People do understand that there are some handicaps in Europe. The reality is it's an overall picture that Europe is a bit more dependent on outside sources for uh, materials and so on, which is you know, a dependency issue. And then you know, as many pundits in life have said, is Europe will always underpunch the growth by about 1%. That's actually in the expectations of company growth. And Europe, you know, let's just be clear, trust in government in Europe is higher than the United States, uh, significantly higher. And uh, even in these treacherous times, people are on average happier. They seem to do a bit more on sustainability and there's a bit more inclusion. But the reality is, you know, can Europe have its cake and eat it? And I have that good feeling while... And so for how long can Europe underpunch the growth and underpunch some of the areas of competitiveness, in particular because the tech landscape and the AI will horizontalize industries in a very fundamental way. And these horizontal platforms could eat out a lot of from the value added of Europe. And that's where people are concerned. And then if you add things like the energy transition, climate, and so on, Europe is standing out in pushing for it, but most dependent on external sources. So the equations start to be a little tight. And so as a result, energy prices in Europe are much higher than in the US and other places that make certain industries uncompetitive and people feel very uncomfortable about it. But the conversation is happening in Europe with two reports coming out, one on the single market and one on European competitiveness, should be taken seriously by the next European Commission. That actually understands it's now high on the political agenda. I would say it wasn't five years ago. We spent time inputting into that research and we added sort of seven goals that Europe should pursue to get better. But, you know, it's a big mass. It's better. One of the better comments the CEO made is only two areas once got together without war, which was Switzerland and Europe. Switzerland's a long time ago and it's in a pretty happy place, we think. But they they basically said, you know, a unification project takes centuries in not even the first inning, I guess, in the maybe second in Europe. And so, nope, that's, it's hard. But even in a very competitive global world, 
that slowness is potentially a handicap, you know, and people are really concerned about it and they're trying to see how the conversation also in Davos can lead to solutions. So that, that topic of sort of specific geography, specific region might make a nice segue to some questions we have here on India, which had apparently a sizable presence at Davos this year. Seems to have gotten a lot of buzz. Tracy, anything to offer here on India in the year ahead? Yeah, so, I mean, the India thing was very interesting because last year also um, they, they had a lot of real estate um, on the promenade. But this year, again, um, and also a stack of events and all of that, you know, the way I thought about this is, you know, we were just talking about geopolitics and supply chains and all of that, which has really kind of brought India to the fore. And I perceive that as a sort of, you know, we're here um, and we're going to, you know, capitalize on those trends and really put, you know, our best foot forwards. And it was sort of, you know, fun to see the embracing of that opportunity. You see the situation of mutual confidence building, but also India is holding a posture, you know, we can do a lot ourselves. And people try to say, okay, so what is the real participation model in the Indian upside now of the rest of the world? So again, a significant discussion, like, you know, who can play, how it gets played, but, there, but the confidence around India is certainly one thing that we should test in a year from now. I wanted to make a ploy for one of the breakout themes this year. Go ahead. Yes. Bring it. I was really happy with the outcome, which is this whole collaboration we did around women's health with um, mm-hmm. with the World Economic Forum. And, uh, you know, I just, I just got some data back, right? So of all the collaborations that the WEF did, this was the third highest in terms of media attention and has reached at this point sort of nearly 800 million readers as it's, you know, spread out around the world. And essentially, you know, the material says, look, we all know that women live longer than men. What we don't realize is that women live 25% of that time in bad health. And by the way, 20%, 25% more time in bad health. And by the way, half of that 25% of the time is during working years. And so then there's a whole lot of diagnostic as to why that actually takes place. But it was real excitement around economic opportunity that presents if you can resolve it. And so people like Bill Gates were talking about for every dollar invested, you get three back. Our own sizing puts the opportunity at, you know, about a trillion dollars of GDP. And so, you know, of course, it's not, you know, at fever pitch yet, but the, the, the launching of that topic really did seem to gain quite a lot of momentum. That's great to hear. I mean, that's a fantastic report. It's very interesting and folks should visit McKinsey.com to, to find it. Um, we've got tons of content on McKinsey.com on all these topics. And that one is of particular interest. So let's move on to climate. CEOs are juggling lots of pairs of scissors right now. It's it's a tough environment, as we said. Given these other exigencies, is there a risk that leaders will let net zero slide? Trace, you, you mentioned that you know, it wasn't didn't seem as much on the front burner as in the past. How does climate fit into this evolving agenda? Yeah, so I, I, I want to be clear, right? Whilst I thought it was um, perhaps less present on the agenda in terms of number of sessions, right, or, or percentage of total sessions, and when I say that, I mean both in the Congress Centre but more broadly, what I observed is that, again, right, there is a realisation that uh, net zero doesn't exist in and of itself, right? Net zero has to be in a way that is affordable, that is just, that is equitable um, and all of those those things. And I think there's been quite a lot of maturing of that topic over the last 12 months, actually longer, given all that we've seen in, in particular in Europe. 
But I also felt like off the back of COP, people are moving to action um, as opposed to, you know, that it was a much more action orientation than a debate orientation. As I said, I do think that the topic of nature specifically gained more relevance this year than I had seen in prior years. And I think that's quite exciting. You know, in one of our sessions where we discussed sustainable inclusive growth, which is sort of the integration of this discussion, one thing that has, I think, landed pretty well, that is an understanding that if people don't get to a certain level of wealth that we call empowerment, that's called the, the poverty line is more like $12 a day, where people start to be able to have basic shelter, basic food, basic education, basic uh, healthcare, and a bit of discretionary to come through bumps nobody will be able to participate. We had one of the energy leaders from uh, India with people from Africa and so on making the point that you can't expect India and Africa to go full out if the solution doesn't become more affordable. Now, it happens to be that certain technologies in Africa and India are much more affordable than they are in Europe, like solar, because the sun shines stronger and so on, uh, while others don't work at all in those places. And I think the world has started to understand that if the thing doesn't work for the people and it would eat in their ability to develop. And just this empowerment line, we're talking 4.8 billion people living below this line, is is a very large point. And so that discussion that says we cannot just solve, as Trace was saying, it's a, it's it's four or five things at the same time that need to be solved. I think as a, as a result, again, you know, Tracy, good word choice, is pragmatic. Because there is no way that we will do the transition if 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 the 4.8 billion people don't connect to being able to be participating in it. I make this very personal sometimes, you know, that $12 line, the Netherlands passed in the 60s, but in the 60s, the Rhine was dirty and we, I'm sure we cared about it, but we just had the money and the mind said to care about it. When we passed the 12, we started to clean it up, even with the ambition that the salmon would swim again. Still dangerous to swim because of the currents, but it's actually clean right now. And so the reality is, there is this coincidence of a wealth forward, a growth forward that leads to inclusion of large parts of society so that they actually can participate, not just in the climate discussion, but I would say most discussions that occur in Davos will be above the mind space that people have until the 4.8 mm-hmm. billion are in this point of empowerment. Thank you. Okay, we have had quite a few questions on talent as well, and that kind of brings us full circle to AI, actually, given talent shortages and concerns about the future of work and the skills transition that could be necessary to fill those workforce gaps now and in years to come. Any key takeaways on talent then? Yeah, so I think the AI talent discussion is kind of an interesting one. At the moment that we have a talent shortage because of fertility rates and all that kind of stuff, but also because of a lack of productivity growth over the last decade, the largest potential productivity growth opportunity that I've seen in my 33 years at McKinsey is coming by. So what a better moment to have these things come together, you could kind of say. So, you know, are we going to be too slow in the benefits of automation, AI, and so on to bring in prosperity for all? So that we always are in this tension is one thing. I sometimes have this feeling, and the reskilling discussion was kind of interesting also in their vote, is there are two views on this. We need to train them, and then they will get the new work, versus we need to do the new work, and then they will come. I'm a little bit personally in the last camp, which is, you know, let's create the opportunities in which we're doing things in new ways. And in those places, we will sort it out. Many of the hardest challenges in the world got challenged, got changed from a capability and talent perspective, because we actually started to address the challenges. 
And to me, that means that if we move full force on the potential of the automation to you know, advance human prosperity, I actually think some of the talent gaps could be closed. There will be very specific talent gaps in different geographies and so on, who, by the way, will close because a lot of the talent can now work all the distance and want to work all the distance. But we're not talking just around the corner in the suburb. We're actually talking people in Madeira working for the US, people in India, and so on. So there's quite a lot of stuff that is changing in this domain. But if you take the telescope off, we have all the potential to do the work that we need to make you know, people pass the $12 line, if you want to call that way. Let's just not get confused in the microscope that a bit of labor shortage is probably also one of the best ways to continue to drive productivity. Actually, if you don't have pressure on the labor market, the system will get lazy to drive fundamental productivity. And we're working on this as MGI also to show that the new equation of productivity is to come. Would each of you tell us something about this 2024 gathering at Davos that either is surprising or that we won't necessarily read about in the media? Tracy, let's start with you. So I actually wanted to uh, offer not my own comments, but we had a woman who went as one of the sort of Davos 50, which is, you know, these young leaders and she as a result participated in many sessions with some of the you know the the big leaders from around the world she had this observation which was about the humility of leaders in this moment and how they were talking about the idea that sometimes the moment makes the leader and that this very difficult context if you couple that with people who are you know working with a values orientation with adaptability and res with resilience, but looking to this very uncertain moment for the opportunity that the moment can the moment can make the leader. It's great. That's a positive note. Sven, what about you? One of my surprising meetings in the bilateral was somebody who started asking what I'm doing with my kids. Uh, I thought this one was me talking about the global economy, 2024, downsides, upsides. And the questions were quite specific, like, are they on TikTok? Do you sometimes ask them to help you? Are you congratulated at all? And this person, I think rightfully so, was quite worried about what we are doing with the next generation that will be the people that will shape the Davo of 25 years hence and further. And said, you know, we need to be really, really disciplined to make sure that we do the best for our kids to develop properly in this context to drive ourselves to new heights. And I found it fascinating. I, I really thought, and this that lasted not for two minutes at the beginning, and then we went back to the economy. No, this was the conversation. It was like the opposite of what I thought I would be doing there, but it was very, very helpful. That is super interesting, and I will be scheduling to meet with you next week to discuss uh, the fate of my own children. That brings us to time, but this has been a fantastic discussion, guys. Tracy and Sven, thank you both again for joining us today. Thanks so much for listening to the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fasaro. Find us on McKinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly. And download the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review. We'll see you in two weeks. 